Hello listeners and welcome to what is now the fourth season of Pebble in the Pond podcast. We appreciate your support throughout the first three seasons uh, as we get our listenership up towards that 16,000 mark. Uh, thank you everybody, we appreciate it and um, yeah, and what a privilege it is to bring you uh, these stories from amazing people. We are here and we are aiming to create a ripple for change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and and accomplished people in the mental health space. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain content, themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need any assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. including Australia and New Zealand, are debating the future of cannabis policy. In 2020, a national referendum to legalise recreational cannabis use and supply via the CLCB, which stands for the Cannabis Legislation and Control Bill, was held in New Zealand and was narrowly defeated. In today's episode of Pebble in the Pond, we chat with Associate Professor Chris Wilkins from Shaw and Fariki Research Centre, the College of Health at Massey University in New Zealand. Chris shares insights about the preferences for different cannabis law reform options among the general population and key national stakeholders in New Zealand and the key factors in the defeat of the CLCB. Chris Wilkins, thanks very much for spending some time with me. Kia ora and welcome to Australia. Yeah, kia ora. It's been a while since you've been able to make that trip across the ditch without fear of having to sit in a hotel for a while. How's it feel? It feels really good. I mean, it's like you said, it's been over two years, probably three years since the conference, and uh, you begin to wonder if you can still do it and where's the suit. So, yeah. You feel like you're almost breaking the law, getting on the plane, coming over, feel weird? That's right. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's great because, you know, I love New Zealand, but I also love to travel. So, oh, well, great. it's a pleasure to have you, and thanks very much for your time. Chris, do you, do you want to give our re, uh, listeners, not readers, our listeners a bit of a background on you and professionally, what have you been up to? Well, I guess I've got a pretty unusual background for this sector that I'm, I'm actually a, an economist and my PhD is in economics, so it seems right. a bit strange. But I, And the way I got into kind of the drug research field was the legal market, so that was quite unusual in economics. So I started getting really interested in how illegal markets worked and then the public health part of it really came through, you know, as I, I I worked through that issue. So, yeah, now I'm a little bit of both. And when you say illegal markets, we're we talking black market, like dark web sort of stuff. Are we talking criminal gangs, all that sort of stuff? Yeah, yeah, all, all that kind of stuff. But also, I mean, the structure of illegal drug markets in general. But we've done a lot of work on gangs in New Zealand and their role in the drug market, but also... As you mentioned, dark webs is something we've been working on for a while and just recently, actually, from that work, we've got into social media 
um, being used for drug market. So now you might be aware, of course, there's a whole lot of social media platforms, but there's encrypted messaging. They're using social media platforms on the dark web or is this on out in the open? No, this is, this is out in the open. So wow. one of the platforms that we recently did some work on is Discord. So if you're my age, you might not understand what that is, but if you're a, a young person who's a gamer, Discord is pretty much universally used by gamers to communicate with each other and you can create servers, personalised servers. And so that Discord has actually been used in New Zealand to largely sell cannabis, but basically it just networks up drug buyers and drug sellers. And it's, it's, Discord's not particularly encrypted, but you can, of course you can use encrypted messaging apps like whatsapp and and telegram and things like that yeah so i mean it just keeps evolving doesn't it yeah well i mean drug markets i mean are just like any other market so you know the key is to network up get as many sellers and buyers on the market and so social media the way it's so it's now used to sell everything under the sun it sells illegal drugs now as well and 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 the but the i guess the main concern is a lot of these platforms largely populated by young people, very young people. Parents aren't often aware of how they're being used or even known very much about them. So it's a bit of a black hole in that way, yeah. You're right. I mean, that's a challenge in itself, like parents just knowing what their kids are up to on these platforms. And I'm keen to touch on that a bit later on as well. But if I go back to the economist side of things, into the illegal markets, I mean, it's it's not every day an economist would – see that as a as a career path i mean was it a chance conversation was it how did that happen i, I, I don't, don't know if i really saw it as a career path but i i just thought it was fascinating because you know markets are we all live in capitalist societies yeah. and markets are everywhere prices and everywhere but the same thing happens in illegal drug markets and it's just a different structure and one of the fascinating things i found about it is even though illegal markets are full of so-called criminals and and bad people, they still work. So, you know, people generally pay for something and they get something. And this idea that, you know, you often get robbed or ripped off in illegal markets is is a little bit exaggerated that by and large, even though both participants in the eyes of the law are criminals, you know, transactions happen pretty smoothly most of the time. So I found that really interesting, you know. And so uh, over your, how many years have you been in the field for now? Oh, um, 20. Yeah, wow. Yeah, so it flies by. And so did you, was it something that you looked in just on a New Zealand context or you also did some international case studies in order to get a really good grasp of how this was? Well, initially it was largely New Zealand, but increasingly, I mean, one of the main areas that I've been working in in the last, say, five to 10 years is cannabis policy. And of course, a lot of the exciting stuff is happening overseas in terms of legalization in the US and Canada and you know Uruguay. And so increasingly, particularly in the drug policy area that we work in, it is international because oh, New Zealand's a small country and we're very influenced in what's going on around the world. As far as the illegal markets are concerned in New Zealand, how, how big is it? Um, is it quite a big market over there? Well, I mean, the big difference from when I first started in the early 2000s was largely drug problem in New Zealand was, you know, cannabis, maybe a few opioids, maybe morphine. 
But the big story since then has been methamphetamine, and now methamphetamine is a huge problem in parts of New Zealand. We do wastewater testing, just like there is in Australia, for detecting drug use, and methamphetamine in some regions of New Zealand is a huge problem, really high volumes. And that's really changed the drug scene in New Zealand and also the gang scene. So both of those things have become a lot more serious in the time I've been working. Methamphetamine is a challenge that most countries seem to be going through at the moment. Tell us about the impact that's had in New Zealand. Well, it's been really huge, as I said, in some regions, particularly Northland, um, Central North Island, a lot among Maori in particular, it's been mm. a problem. But And I guess New Zealand's a lot like Australia in that we are the end market a lot of the explosion in methamphetamine supply that's happened in the last you know, five to ten years in terms of the level of supply largely through Asia that's, that's coming up. It's slashing the price of methamphetamine in New Zealand and, and our seizures, seizure, you know, one-off seizures are just getting bigger and bigger. So it used to be kilograms, now it's hundreds of kilograms uh, as a typical seizure. And, you know, so that's really worrying you. Yeah. That's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, and you're right, the price of it coming down makes it more affordable for a lot more people and this is a highly addictive drug and the impact that it has on communities can be quite devastating, you know, indigenous populations. Yeah, that's that's right. So the price, you know, when I first started in the early 2000s, the price of a gram of methamphetamine was around $1,000 a gram. Now it's down to about 350 oh. So it's just been, you know declining ever since and also I mean another one of the major findings from our research you know most people associate drug use with urban environments with cities you know with nightclubs and club scene and things like that whereas actually with methamphetamine it's increasingly clear to us that it's 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 really isolated and often in rural and and smaller towns that have a long list of problems in terms of employment and economic activity and social problems and those places out of sight, out of mind, and they often become sinkholes for a whole lot of problems. They're not well serviced by health service and drug treatment, and methamphetamine just becomes entrenched in those societies. And yeah, hey, that's an interesting point you made, and that'd be devastating to those communities because they, I mean, they're, they're not large communities compared to the city, but I mean, it wouldn't take long for it to over overcome, overrun these regional areas, which would not be. And they're isolated too, to some degree, some of these farmers or agricultural areas, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, that's right. And also often those local markets are really easy for organised crime and gangs to dominate because, you know, we hear stories literally of motorcycle gangs coming into a smaller town, you know, taking over drug markets, telling people to stop growing cannabis and start making meth. And that really overwhelms you know, whatever police are there. So that's the other factor, you know. You have a smaller town, it's a small yeah. community, the nearest policeman or police person can be, you know, hundreds of miles away. And so it really becomes a bit of a Wild West situation pretty quickly. If we talk economics on the war on drugs in New Zealand, how big is the market there in New Zealand at the moment as it relates to drugs? Well, I don't think it's been updated in a while, but cannabis is probably over a billion dollars. Okay, and meth, sizable. Yeah, meth might be similar. So they're, they're large markets, and I guess the thing that I've been talking about just recently is 
you know, as we see the wastewater testing results that are quite localised to, you know, a wastewater treatment station, so you can detect drugs in the smaller communities and towns and you see the level of consumption per capita and obviously the market comes with that, is how much, you know, is corruption is going on in terms of gangs getting an influence over those places and being able to corrupt other institutions within there. And I think that's a real risk that New Zealand has to think about. Just because of the size of the market, that money has to go somewhere. So, yeah. As far as criminals go, though, it's, I mean, what an opportunity to be part of that billion-dollar, multi-billion-dollar industry in the drug trade. I mean, it's pretty appealing, isn't it? Yeah, that, 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 that's true. I mean, I, 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 but I also think it's a little bit of a trap. So... It's true that at the higher levels of the market, you can make a lot of money and you can insulate yourself from enforcement to some extent. But when you get to mid-level and lower level, yeah, the attraction to a lot of young people is, oh, you know, so-and-so is selling meth, they've got a flash car, you know, surrounded by you know, interesting people and they've got, you know, great girlfriend, boyfriend, and it all looks like a success story. But there's really a lot of pressure. So a lot of those sellers are using meth themselves, so they've got to pay for their own meth. They might be already have drug debts with a higher-level seller or and they've got their own chaotic life to deal with. So it, it becomes a bit of a, you know, a short-term fix to a problem that can result in you know bad, really terrible outcomes for them. So they either end up in prison or, or they end up in debt to a big extent. Let's talk about the cost of 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 drugs being illegal. To because I mean the prison system is is full of people that are in incarceration due to an offence to drugs. Tell us what's it costing people in in New Zealand. Well, it, it's a huge cost. So any time you put in somebody in prison, an economist will tell you, you know, there's the there's a cost of actually doing that financial cost, but it's also a cost on the person themselves. So, you know, they bear that cost the rest of their lives. So a mistake you make in, when you're very young and you're 18 can follow you for the rest of your life in a really negative way. So, you know, we very much support a health-based approach, approach, and the current government has started that conversation and started saying, well, we're never going to arrest our way out of this. We've got to start taking a health focus approach. But it's following that up with action and actual policies and getting other parts of the government to essentially agree and come into line. So one of the really good things that the government did recently in New Zealand is they essentially decriminalise all drug possession for users. So they said they reversed the onus of arrest, so police actually had to come up with a good reason to arrest someone, otherwise they should just refer them to health services, which to me makes a whole lot more sense than just arresting them and then trying to put them through the court system, which is hugely expensive. So possession is no longer illegal? No. It, well, okay. it, it's Well, it's illegal, but the police are encouraged to refer them. Yeah, as the first, you know, the first thing they should do. If there's a particular circumstance, they might go for arrest, but it's kind of reversing the order of it, what it previously did. And is it based on a certain amount? Um, a certain amount, but again, once the government starts saying, well, it's, it's a health problem and we need a health response, that changes the story for drug enforcement. So the goal is not to put so many people in prison, but kind of solve the problem in another way. So I think there is a lot of leniency with that. 
So they're redirecting the funds that would have gone to imprisonment uh, or, or the, the prison system into health to that, support this? That, that's one of the issues. So, so it's nice to say all that stuff about yeah. it's going to, but yeah, that's 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 the 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 you know rubber meets the road thing is where you need to redirect resources, mm. and of course you've got to have your drug treatment and your counselling services. Ready. So when you refer yeah. someone, they actually have got somewhere to go, and they can, and it's and, and it's and it's Maori focused, and it's something they're comfortable with, and they can make progress. So where are we at as far as when was that decision made with that possession rule? Has it been changed recently? I think it's been in for maybe a year or maybe even almost two years. But COVID is yeah. But well, the interesting thing about it is you can change. It wasn't particularly strong because they didn't change the law. All they did is they changed the direction they were giving to police. So there's it's not an instantation, instantaneous change like you would if you changed the law. So you really rely on the police coming on board and, right. you know, actioning that, and the action has been pretty mild. Okay, so they're not all referring them to health services yet. There's still, there's still the arresting going on, and particularly amongst Māori who are most disproportionately focused on, yeah. it, it's not working that well with them. I mean... I don't think we should prejudge, so it's very early days and it, yeah. it may well come out more clearly in, in the next um, few months and years. Is it a lack – is the reason they're not referring due to a, a lack of confidence in the people they're referring to or do you think it's a lack of education and awareness to the police about being okay to do that now instead of locking them up that they already always have and changing their habits? Yeah, well, that's right. So I, I don't want to oversimplify this. Like, so yeah, there is those issues about feeling that when you did refer someone to health service, something would happen and that they would engage with them. But there's probably also some residual, you know, traditional view that that maybe they they should be arrested. But I think actually, I mean, it's really interesting with law enforcement. Often you find they are most open to changes in drug policy approaches because they're on the front line. Yeah. So they see they see the futility of arresting the same person over and over again and them going to prison. They see that how counterproductive that is. And so, you know, you know, contrary to popular belief, your average many police actually see that this is a health problem and that the way they can help is not by putting people in jail but also by getting them into a you know treatment or counseling you know system and so if we look now chris towards mass university and the research center what were what were you commissioned to undertake as far as research goes were you approached from the ministry of new zealand or, or ministry of health sorry to help provide some sort of insight into possible reform around can, cannabis and legalization of cannabis <laughs> um well i mean Whenever you talk to researchers, they always say funding's terrible, but in New Zealand it is particularly terrible. So the the quick answer to that was not really. So, okay. you know, university system in New Zealand is particularly underfunded compared to Australia. And so really a lot of this work has come out. I mean, previously we, of course, do contracts for Ministry of Health and Ministry of Justice, and we worked with them on our cannabis policy work, but a lot of the funding does not particularly come from that and that's a real gap it's a real gap because New Zealand in terms of even drug monitoring and annual surveys of drug use is way behind Australia just because the funding situation for universities is just brutally competitive and there's other stuff that always trumps 
drugs as issues. So, so yeah. Yeah. So tell us about then the, I mean, the modelling that you've been doing around cannabis and legalising all the law reforms around that. And I know you've looked at international examples of, of how that modelling has happened and, and there's lots of different examples of this. Tell us firstly about the the models that you looked at internationally and then how it related to what you're looking at with regards to New Zealand. Yeah, well, I mean, one thing we were very fortunate about was that we people from our centre regularly go to international conferences, so we meet and develop you know, personal networks and friendships with other drug researchers from different parts of the world, particularly in the US, Canada and Uruguay for this project and Belgium. So, and we were really fortunate to meet some really great experts in those different areas and have, be able to chat with them and talk about how their changes have come about. So what we did with this project, one of the things we do is we managed to convince all those people from those countries to come to New Zealand and we fund, were able to fund them to actually come and do um, presentations and also talk to, participate in debates with the public. So talk a little about the, the things that are happening in their countries because you know, New Zealand is often, I guess, just like Australia and some, very internally focused and realise all the kind of changes that are happening in drug policy around the world. So I still meet people that, you know, have find it very hard to believe that 20 US states have legalised cannabis use and supply, you know, and Canada has as well. So, you know, it's, it's getting away from that kind of, you know, insular kind of thinking about where drug policy should be going. So you had you had these people, international experts, come to New Zealand. You made the made it open to the public to be able to come and listen. Yep. And when we say public, we're just talking the average, the consumer out there that could come along and listen, or are we talking about workers in the sector? What are we talking? Well, what we did, and I should also mention that that, that our university, Mass University, provided the funding to do all this, and it yeah. was all internal, so it was fantastic. So, but. What we did is we arranged physical meetings in the main centres in New Zealand and they were open to the public and then we got our seven experts come along to the public meetings and they literally gave a little bit of a presentation and then they answered questions. And again, it was just to kind of increase the value of the debate. But then with the multi-criteria decision-making analysis workshop we did, we, we held that in Wellington, the capital and we invited every government agency, someone that are involved in the, uh, the referendum, the cannabis referendum, an NGO, and just about everyone we could think of. So it was about 45 um, participants in that. And that was more of a trying to talk with uh, people in charge of agencies and in charge of policy making that have influence yeah so but but a wide range so not just government agencies but also you know ngos and as you know you know ngos are often more well informed and dedicated to change and bringing about reform so we brought them all together in a room and we tried to basically as much as we could evidence provide evidence for different approaches and introduce them to different approaches if they haven't heard of it and then try and get them to agree on something and you know it was it was pretty interesting because there's a lot of agreement and lots of different parts so when when, as soon as you talk talk about cannabis law reform it is a polarizing issue so you do you know throughout the public and even NGOs but there's also a lot of common ground and people can understand the common ground and then they're often willing to you know you know make compromises on various things for the better. Multi-criteria decision-making analysis Tell us about the importance on that, and you, and you made the analogy to, to buying a house, but the importance of looking at that multifaceted approach 
versus just going in there saying, will it help the government? Will it help funding? Will it help? Help? Would it have better health outcomes for the community if we did this? I mean, tell me about the importance of that multiple criteria. Well, it's it's it, on one level, it's a very common, sensible way of making decisions, and as you referred to, we've all done it. And when we we sit down and we decide what house we're going to buy, what car we're going to buy, we really sit down there and try to make a good decision, right? And we've got got some choices. So the first, really, the first uh, point there to make is to get away with just a gut feeling kind of decision or something that you've always done. So when you come to buy your car, you know, your family might have always bought Toyotas, so you just buy another Toyota or or you like the car that's the red one. If, if you know, you've, yeah. we've all been in that boat, the one with the spoiler on. So it's really going beyond those kind of emotional, you know, to, you know, one one attribute decision. So the first thing I think it really does is it forces you to sit down and think about all the criteria that are important in that decision and that's multi-criteria so with drug policy you know of course health is important but it's not the only criteria and when we're talking about prohibition and drug policy is you can't just make decisions on law enforcement or on health you know separate you've got to include all the criteria and the other part about it is a forces you to sit down and write what are the policy options so you know you don't have to stick with prohibition or it doesn't have to be a binary decision between prohibition and legalization like alcohol. There's a whole lot of other choices. So you write down all those different choices, you write down all your criteria, and it really just forces you to think it through methodically in a very, you know, in a in trying to look at what, what counts the essential components of what the decision is. And that was the interesting. I mean, the part I liked the most was where you mentioned it wasn't just coming up with the criteria, but the important part was giving weight to the criteria because they're not all equal. And and the, your priority, well, naturally people would prioritize some aspects of that criteria over others, still important, but not as, impo- as important. Tell us about that. I mean, because I thought it was really, really cool. Yeah, well, this is essentially the guts and the most important thing because you know, we say if you're buying a house, we can all sit down there and imagine our perfect house and it's got swimming pools, you know, four bathrooms and, you know, it's on the beach and stuff. That's an ideal and we're not going to get there. But the reality is that we've got a set of choices. They're all imperfect in their own way and they all have some things we want, some things we don't like. But the real way that we can then move forward for that decision is to decide, well, what are the most important things? Is it the number of bathrooms? Is it how far away from the city is it? it, is, is it, is it, is it, is it has it got a, a pool or not? Is that so important? Price. Yeah, and, the, and price. Yeah. Price is, well, price is the obvious one. So price is a good one because it's in dollars. So we can all go, we can compare the dollars and obviously you want to spend less dollars, but the tricky stuff is you want to spend less dollars to get more house. So, you know, some of that stuff is you've got to sit down and decide at one stage, are you going to go... Trade-off. Yeah, trade-off. So that, that's... A, I should have said that a long time ago. So trade-off is really key in MCDA. It, it says it basically helps you trade-off and give weight to different criteria. And that's really important because without that weighting, you don't know which one to choose, right? So... If you're going to make a good decision, you want one that has that basically satisfies the criteria that you have the greatest weight on. So if if your main importance is bathrooms, you want to end up with a house with the most bathrooms. So 
And I should say the MCDA is not actually used that much to select houses, but it's used to actually increasingly in health, the health sector to make some really tricky decisions like surgery priorities. So in an ideal world, you do all the surgery you can, but you've obviously got a surgery waiting list and you've got to make some really tough decisions about who's going to be on that list. Mm. And that means trading off some really difficult issues. So, and that, that's the level of seriousness that it's used for. Almost like triaging it or something, right? That, that, that's right. And it forces you to make some, identify what the criteria, what are the trade-offs and making some really tough decisions. But in, at the end of the day, that's much better than just sitting down there and making a gut decision, you know, you want to do something. And so tell us about a bit of the findings from this after you went through this process, because this is where you got everybody in the room and you, you sort of tried to get a bit of a consensus around what was important. Is that right? Yeah. So the way we did it was the way MCDA works is the trade-off. So I showed a slide where it's basically just a pairwise trade-off between two different outcomes and you say which outcome is better. So you're just ranking which one's the best one. And then by going through a whole series of those choices of outcomes, you end up putting a weight on the outcome. So it tells you as a group which outcomes you value the most and what levels you value them at. So once you've gone through that whole process, and that can be a collaborative process, so when there's no majority uh, decision, you sit down as a group and talk through about why you preferred that outcome to this other outcome. And the great thing about the software is going through that, it, it weights up and sorts out the dominant peers, what we call, and at the end of the day, you end up with a score, or you end up waiting for each criteria and each level, mm. and then the software uses that those weightings to tell you which option has the highest score. The overwhelming yeah. standout winner was the health, health and... Yeah, health and arrests, reducing yes. arrests. And the good thing about the weightings is it's an, it is a relative weighting, so it can be used to describe how much more people value a weighting. So mm. the weighting for health was, memory was about 45%, yeah. and earning tax was only 2%. So that's really telling you that um, health and social harm is, is you know 20 times more important to the people than earning tax from cannabis. And that's, yep. that's a really powerful thing to tell policymakers and politicians. And the same with reducing the black market. You hear a lot about that. But that was actually the third, least, third most important criteria. And, that was, and health and social harm was, again, four times more important than that. So it really focuses. And, and the reason why it's important is because, you know, we, it's really easy for politicians, once you start talking about the legalization of cannabis, to go to the alcohol model. Mm -hmm. So that's their go-to thing because they know it. The industry's telling them that's the way to go. But when you talk to the average people and they say, well, you know, legalization has some benefits, but I don't want my kids buying cannabis. Like, so, we, you know, it says that health and social harm, the options that do a good job of that are strictly regulated and that that's an important message to get it through. And that, at the end of the day, was the one that was, that had the best outcome. Is that correct? Yeah, so the strictly regulated things like public monopoly, a strict market like we have to, for tobacco, not-for-profit trusts, which we've done a lot of work on, they performed the best because they did the best job at dealing with that issue that we'd identified as being so important to everyone. 
I think it's really the different options that you mentioned are quite amazing, aren't they? And you got to you actually have to run your eye through each one because I mean you, you know prohibition was what we've always done, yep. which clearly isn't working. How have you, as far as the results of this study, this research, this prog- program that, or project that you're going to talk, what do we do with it now and what's going to happen in, in New Zealand as a result? Well, in New Zealand, this all happened before the referendum, so we were hoping that it would influence what the government and it, and it did actually. Like they did think about not-for-profit trusts; they were quite keen with that. They could work with iwi, uh, Maori uh, as well in terms of working those and giving out licenses to localized producers who would have semi-monopolies. So, and they talked a lot about not-for-profit. They they thought that was also a good idea. So they did modify their their bill with those things, which is really good to see. Of course, the bill failed. So the where we are at New Zealand, and this is the other, I mean, a lot of what I talked about was actually a cautionary tale about using referendum to bring about drug policy reform. And one of the downsides is when the referendum fails, from then on for the next 10 years, all we ever hear is, well, we tried that, the referendum right. failed, and so we don't have to do anything. But there has been more more kind of lobbying to try decriminalisation. And, you know, to be honest, once we see legalisation of cannabis in Europe, I think we should be, you know, honest with ourselves that probably we're going to get legalisation everywhere. So it's, I, I hate to say things are inevitable, but I think there's going to be ongoing pressure. So it's something that we can't just ignore kind of thing. It's very interesting though, isn't it? And it's, I mean, and some good cases, especially when you look internationally, that it has seemed to be able to, to work and have better outcomes for health and social outcomes for the communities if, if there is a decriminalisation of it. Yeah, decriminalisation works reasonably well. The, the downside, and we actually have that as the option in one of our MCDAs, and the downside of decriminalisation is it does stop the arrests part, but it doesn't deal with the illegal market. Mm. So the illegal market keeps on going. So you don't earn any tax, you don't have more income for yeah. um, drug treatment, and, and basically you have all the problems with a larger legal market. And also it's not as effective as people might think in terms of reducing arrests. People still get caught up in the system and so it's not as effective as legalisation in that way. It's really interesting, Chris. I mean, as you look forward, what, I mean, what's, what's the exciting part now with what you're up to, Mass University, the Research Centre? Tell us a bit about that and, and where things are heading. Well, I, I think the exciting part for us for cannabis policy changes, we really want to promote uh, non-commercial, non-alcohol style reform. So the conversation for us has moved on that legalisation is probably going to happen for cannabis in a lot of places in the next five, five years or so. But the real risk for us is that market gets so commercialised it's going to end up like another alcohol market. And I guess what we are trying to communicate is there's, there's alternatives to that. You don't have to go that way. You can have yep. a lot. There's a middle ground. Yeah, there's, a middle, there's middle ground options that are actually good for the community where, because the, the worst thing that can happen is you have a massive cannabis industry that's just like alcohol. All the money's siphoned out of you know communities that have a lot of problems and they never see it again, whereas... What I really like is the community not-for-profit model where, you know, the community takes charge of how the market operates in their locality and the money that is spent on that, on cannabis, is goes back into the community in terms of sports, culture and other things. 
So we do that in pokey machines in New Zealand and this mandated percentage of all the money that goes into the pokey machine actually has to be spent in the community. And having that in law is fantastic. You know, there is a lot of issues with the gambling trust and I acknowledge that, but to me getting that first step right is can be really powerful. So instead of your alcohol or cannabis industry funding super yachts and Ferraris, it actually takes some responsibility for what's happening in the community. And those poker machines make a lot of money, don't they? Well, a lot of the blowback I get is, you know, you shouldn't be promoting poker machines. I'm not promoting poker machines at all. They're terrible. They're absolutely, you know... They're soul-sucking yeah, kind of... people put in those things. Yeah, and it's it's a terrible existence and, you know, but the pragma- pragmatist in me says if you've got to have pokey machines and I would be the first yeah. one to say get rid of them all, but if you're going to have them, at least have some of the money go to something yeah. that's worthwhile and you could say that for all gambling. So it's tricky in that way. Like, you know, I, I totally acknowledge it. Uh, yeah. Gambling addiction for pokey machine people is so high; it's terrible. Almost like a community tax, you know that. Yeah. That they have to pay. I mean, one way I always say is: imagine if alcohol was not sold by massive multinational companies, but was largely controlled by local communities in terms of the sale and all the money that you've ploughed into alcohol in your lifetime. At least you can say. 60% or 70% of that actually went back into the community to fund sporting. So in New Zealand, there's an alcohol community trust. They paid for the sporting stadium with the money from alcohol sales. Wow. And that's really powerful. Like, you know, that's there forever and that helps young people in terms of hopefully drug prevention in, in the future. It's probably the one good thing that comes from drinking alcohol or, yeah. so, you know, is you can see something as a result of of paying for it and you can actually see something that's going to last. That's a really good idea, a really good concept. Yeah, yeah. And it, it does make a difference in the people that live in those community alcohol, even though they might not like the trust because they operate out of not these fancy retail outlets and pubs and bars aren't as, as fancy as other places like in the city, they do understand that the programs they see in their community in sports and culture and the arts – come from that money so you know that's that's something that hopefully their children can really benefit from this is really interesting i mean it, as far as you're concerned i mean there's still plenty going on research wise plenty happening in that space moving forward for you guys oh absolutely so in new zealand we're with the referendum fam we're back to square one in some ways but i still think there's almost a, you know underlying like so we had the referendum and it was rejected but barely. So it was 50.7% against versus guessing now something like 48, 49%. So it was very close. And to be honest, you know, when you look around the world, I think that change is coming and people are kind of increasingly open to to some kind of reform. And it was a good idea to expose them to that international perspective as well so that they can actually – hear it from people in countries where it's actually hasn't created worse outcomes, which is the fear. That makes sense. Yeah, that, that's right. So New Zealand's, you know, it's a small country, and so yeah. we're very much like, unless someone else is doing it, we're, we're, we're you know, we're, we think it's impossible, but as soon as someone else is doing it, we can we feel good about it and we can do it. Although, as I said, there is some localised, really, innovation, like, you know, with the gambling trusts and the alcohol community trusts. 
it's just that nobody knows about it, you know, because often those things fly under the radar and the average politician or policymaker, it's easy for them to just think everything is like alcohol. So there's a lot of work there in terms of getting people to think innovatively because really there's, it's, it's just laziness to go fall back on the alcohol model just because that's all you've ever seen and the industry's telling you that's, you know, some really good smart stuff can be, can be designed if you just, you know, take a bit of a breath and, and take a moment because, you know, Uruguay has legalised cannabis. It was the first country to legalise cannabis and it's got a completely non-commercial model. So it uses social clubs, home growing and a little bit of sale from pharmacies. And the social clubs can work really well. You know, it's just, a, it's, it's literally a bunch of cannabis users getting together, financing a crop, um, talking a lot about cannabis. And then once that crop's ready, they share out the cannabis, paying, paying some club dues and paying for the cost of growing the crop. And then just, you know, using the cannabis. And it's it's like you know alcohol homebrew. So if you yeah. if you imagine the whole alcohol industry is just homebrew, that's yeah, that has some really good public health benefits. God, I can't ever see us getting to that for alcohol. Could you imagine that? Yeah, well, that, that that's right. It's hard to go backwards because because <laughs> everyone loves that. But you know, when you think about it through through the history of alcohol consumption. Most of the time, it's been essentially social clubs. You know, it's been people brewing their own alcohol, sharing it with their neighbours, and it's not been a large commercial industry where mass-produced advertising and promotion and you know sell it to you. It's very interesting, Chris. I find it. Yeah, I could talk about it for ages. But it, how how can people get in touch with you if they want to know more about this and the research that you're doing over there in New Zealand? Well. They can email me, of course, so c.wilkins at massey.ac.nz is probably the best way. Um, they can visit our Facebook page, New Zealand Drug Trend, or they can go to Massey University and go to the Shore and Fariki Research Centre. Are there any other resources that you can also mention for people to look at? Is there anything else? Some of them are on our website, but the, the two papers that really present this research that was part of the presentation here you know, I really encourage people just to contact me. I'm more than happy to send yeah. them copies of that. So cool. just email me and, yeah, that'd be great. Fantastic. Well, thanks very much for your time, Chris. Very fascinating. And c- congratulations on the work you've done to date. I've got no doubt there'll be a lot more happening in this space as we go forward and keep up the great work. And, yeah, thanks very much for, for coming and having a chat. Yeah, well, just um, another thanks for inviting me. It's always really great audience, really great conference. It's good to speak to AOD worker sectors. I mean, such a, it's a nice change from academics and it's a nice change from public who don't, you know, as well. So thank you. Perfect. Thanks very much, Chris. Yep. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.